Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Theatre lovers, both out and proud and on the DL, and welcome to Broadway Breakdown, a podcast discussing the history and legacy of American theatre's most exclusive address, Broadway. This series is called The British Invasion, and it is covering shows that originated in the United Kingdom and then transferred across the pond to our Great White Way. Some making a giant splash, and some barely making a ripple. I am your host, Matt Koplick the least famous and most opinionated of all the Broadway podcast hosts. And with me today, oh boy, she is an entrepreneur, casting director, coach, social media extraordinaire. Please welcome Miss Kate Lumpkin. Hi. (laughs) Wearing the most uh, gorgeous of glasses. There for the blue light, let's be honest. It's fine. It's great. Full disclosure, uh, when I do uh, little like, preview of this episode on social media i almost likely include a little bit of this video uh great so just just so the the listeners know if they want to see exactly what i'm talking about they can find my uh instagram handle and see the preview on there and see kate's magnificent glasses and if you need them folks i can send you a link as to where to get them you can get them yourself (laughs) you know who wear those glasses who did you ever watch i'm well who am i talking to you've seen bridget jones's diary Hello. Yes, of course. Of course. Natasha, Colin Firth's uh, like really mean girlfriend. She would totally have those glasses. I'm irate with you. You're not wrong, but I'm irate with you. No, no. she's so, she's so mean, but she's so fashionable. It's true. She's patina fashionable. She would wear those fashionable glasses. But do they make me look mean? That's my question. No, they make you look fashionable. Okay. Okay. I'll take it. I'll take it then. Great. I mean, I'm assuming you're mean, but we'll get to that later. I can't with you. I was assuming you were going to say, you know who would wear those glasses? Christine Baranski. And that would have been a beautiful tie-in to what we're about to talk about, but it's fine. It's fine. fine. Christine Baranski wears the like tiniest of glasses. Like they go on the tip of her nose. They barely cover her eyes ball sockets. And she but she can make anything look fierce and fabulous. Let's be really honest. So she would wear she would wear the shit out of these. I mean, did you see Christmas on the Square? Did I see Christmas on the Square? Who are you talking to? I Who are you talking to? I'm learning every second who I'm talking to. Come on, Dolly Parton in front of a green screen? Of course I watched it. Motherfucker, yes. That Come woman on. never on set a day in her life. And that cast all did interviews of like, oh yeah, she was this, she was that. There's like a story where she saved a girl's life. And I'm like, you all got together in a room and were told by producers what to tell people. Cause Dolly was never on set. 
or she was there. And either way, I don't care because it was magic. Like it was magical and there were there were glowing lights and there was a story. I don't care. I, I'll watch it again this year. There I'll was watch it again. there was too much story. There were simply <laughs> too many things happening in that movie. I love that movie so much. The fact that it is now an Emmy nominated thing blows my mind. And it has Christine Bransky starring in it, which leads us to the topic at hand today. Kate, what motherfucking musical are we talking about? Mamma Mia, Papa, here I go again. Actually, not Mamma Mia, here we go again, but Mamma Mia, honey, Mamma Mia. Not Mamma Mia 2, here we go again, simply Mamma Mia. <laughs> Mamma Mia. Mamma yeah. Mia, exclamate. You have to go up because it has an exclamation point. Mamma Mia. It also, just like Oklahoma, it has a dance ballet. It has a full ballet. So, you know. Does it? It's gonna... yeah. Excuse me. Excuse me. Are you Wait. kidding me right now? When's the ballet? First of all, the ballet. The ballet. The ballet. Oh, I'm going to the ballet. Well, I'm getting uh, us ready for Billy Elliot. I want to dance the ballet. You can't dance the ballet, Billy. Oh my God, Billy Elliot. I could talk about that until the kings, until the cows come home. Um, the the whole moment where she has the dream sequence. Oh, the nightmare. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't necessarily consider that a ballet so much as it's just um a cluster. We fuck. don't consider that a we don't consider that a dream ballet when it's literally actually a dream sequence set to music and dance. I mean, is there really dance in it? Really, there is. There is structured movement. <laughs> <laughs> You don't want to call it a dream ballet? That's fine. Well, I guess there That's is fine. a lot of I guess there is a lot of porta bra in it. Um, it depends <laughs> on who your choreographer is. Listen, I, I'm I'm here to believe that it, the structure of writing has a dream ballet in that show. I'm okay. just putting it out there. It's it's there in the script. How you choreograph it is up to you. I, the production that swept the world, I would say, is more upper body strength than it is full on dance in that sequence. There uh, is more dancey dance later on. But we'll get into that when we talk about some of these reviews, honey. Um, okay. Which these reviews are some of the most insanely, po- like, po- or pos- positively insane, insanely positive reviews I've ever read. We're it's basically- like the Guy Fieri American Grill review of musical theater. I, kind of. It's like all these critics basically being like, I don't know what to tell you. I yep. can't tell you this is good. I can just tell you I loved it. And it's like, right. yeah. Um, I don't know. I actually would argue that it is good in its own really weird way. Uh, that but Mamma Mia is good in its own way or the reviews were? No, the, the show, Mamma Mia. Oh, oh, it's it's brilliant. That's yes. why I wanted to talk about Mamma Mia. It's a cannot... brilliant show, period, the end. Fantastic. Oh no, exclamation point, the end. Ah, Mamma Mia! Mamma Mia! So we're talking about Mamma Mia, exclamation point. Kate, what is your history with the show? How did it come into your life? In terms of ever being in the show, ever working on the show, any of these things, I have no experience. I cannot believe I have been in this industry since I was eight years old. I have never worked on a production of Mamma Mia. I have never been in a production of Mamma Mia. When I tell you though, that I have seen probably like 60 productions of Mamma Mia. Um, Don't don't give me that face. That is six Um, zero. Correct, because it's produced everywhere. And so much of my job is going to find new talent. And the brilliance of Mamma Mia is it is chock full of young people and new talent. So I go to see it all over the place. Um, but my first my first foray into the great magical Grecian island um, was seeing Carolee Carmelo on Broadway doing Mamma Mia. That was like around 2004, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, correct. Yeah. 
first of all, get ready for my brain. Look who you're talking to. I just, I'm ready. I did, I, that was just off the top of my fucking head. Like, I don't have a, I didn't realize I had a database for when the Donnas were happening. Like which Donnas were when. I mean, um, I'm not entirely positive that it was 2004, but it was definitely around that time. Well, the reason I say, well, so it opened in 2001 on Broadway and Louise Petrie did it for two years, as did a, a lot of people in that cast. Uh, Judy Kay discusses in Nothing Like a Dame, which if you haven't read that book, everyone read that book. She talks about Mamma Mia and basically like everyone in the original company who wanted to stay, like all stayed as long as they could before the producers had to literally kick them all out. They're like, we are not renewing your contracts anymore. Like after two years, you you gotta go. Yeah. Um, and they claimed it was because they didn't want the show to get stale. But Judy K is like, they just didn't want to pay us more because every year we would have to get um, renewed. And on top of that, Louise Petra had basically done the show for like a year and a half in Toronto and on the road. So she was already getting paid up the wazoo. Because um, it was on the road for a long time. It went to a lot of cities before it came to New York. Yeah, it was. It, 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 yeah, it, was, it, a, opened, it was a good number of cities. They did very long sit downs in yeah. major cities. But yeah, it was on the road for a solid year. It was at the Orpheum in San Francisco. It went to L.A. It went to Chicago. And then it came to New York. And it went to Toronto before any of those places. Yeah, it opened in Toronto where it did a five-year sit down. We are getting all over the place. So let me tell, <laughs> you, let me tell you my history with the show. Great. Um, Sorry. No, it's totally fine. So, Twist, I first saw the show at the ripe old age of nine on the sure. West End. The show had been open for maybe a year. I think half the original cast was still there. Half of them had, you know, been replaced at that point. And I knew nothing about the show. It was my first trip to London. I was so excited. I was like, oh my God, classy, classy theater. I'm so excited. And the two shows we saw were Mamma Mia and Starlight Express. And <laughs> To be fair, I picked Starlight Express after seeing Mamma Mia because I was like, this is going to be the only time I'll ever get to see this show and I need to see it. Uh, just like for my own yeah. like theater going cultural history. So we did. But Mamma Mia, we went to and all I knew is that it was this big, big hit. Everyone loved it. And I didn't know ABBA. I didn't know that they were a band. I didn't know any of their songs. And just from the title, I had this image in my head that it was going to sort of be like a modern operetta. I literally was picturing uh, Kiss Me Kate. That's what I was thinking. And we go but in- like the production in Kiss Me Kate. Yeah. Like, like the production yeah. they were doing in Miss Kiss Me Okay, great. I literally was picturing the Kiss Me Kate of Kiss Me Kate. I was the, picturing- The taming of the shrew adaptation of Kiss Me Kate. And I hated it so much. To be fair to the show, it was more that I hated the audience reaction, which is something that the show has become very famous for. I, mm. because I didn't know the songs, I didn't know that it was famous. Certain moments would happen and the audience would erupt in laughter and I didn't understand why it was funny. I didn't get why people were singing along. I was, I was like, this is the worst audience behavior I've ever seen. I'm so angry. I particularly remember, and now that I know the history of it, I realize the brilliance of it, but I particularly remember when Donna and Sam are having their fight in act two. Mm -hmm. And he was like, Donna, listen. And she goes, I don't want to talk. And the entire audience laughed. And I'm going, this is a serious scene. Why is everyone laughing? And later on, I find out, like many years later, I realized, oh, this is like a really famous ABBA song. And what the playbill did so brilliantly uh, was it listed all the songs the show was going to use, but in alphabetical order, not in the order of which it was going to be in the show. So audiences yes. going in who love these songs were waiting in anticipation for when the songs were going to be used. And with the winner takes it all is like probably top five most famous ABBA songs. And by the time of middle of act two, everyone was like waiting for it. Like, when's it going to happen? When's it going to happen? And then that scene happens and you get so engulfed in the drama of the scene. 
And so when Don is saying, I don't want to talk, everyone is taken by surprise. They're like, oh my God, of course this is when the song happens. And I can't believe I didn't see it coming. And also I'm so happy. And looking back, I'm like, that's a beautiful moment. I was just too young and didn't know enough to appreciate it. Well, clearly you also had an experience theater in London, which is also wildly different. Like British mm-hmm. audiences react to theater in such a different way. And so clearly Mamma Mia was structured to be done for a British audience, which I think is really fascinating that it also has been so successful worldwide and was so successful in the US mm-hmm. because it is, it's almost written like a panto. Like there are moments that are so deeply rooted in panto, which ask an audience to interact with them. Um, and so so I think that's like fascinating too, that you hadn't been a part of the panto culture to understand like call and response or like funny moments or those mm-hmm. kind of things that are so deeply entrenched in a British theatrical experience. Yes, that is all very true. And we will get to that. We will get to all of it. Uh, the show eventually came to, Sorry. my school saw it um, like a month or two uh, after it opened on Broadway. Uh, and we all saw it again. And something about, obviously we'll get into, you know, the atmosphere of New York at that time, but also with the Broadway company, I don't think it's too shocking to say uh, Broadway talent in musical theater is a little stronger than West End musical theater talent. So the show was tighter, it was uh, more vibrant, it was louder, it was a little better sung. And I also knew what to expect and I loved it. I listened to the cast album all the time. When the movie came out, I saw it three times. I had not seen Mamma Mia on stage again until after college. And then I promptly saw it, I think three or four more times, not because I loved it so much, but because I've had the blessing of having friends get cast in it. And I go back to see them. So like one of my best friends uh, did the tour and then another one of my best friends uh, got cast in it on Broadway. And then she got bumped up to Sophie. And then the one who was on the tour got made her Broadway debut in the ensemble. I was like, well, I guess I'm seeing the show a million times. Um, And I'm thrilled. I couldn't be happier. Yeah. One could say we're dancing queens. I I mean, like, I am. An, you don't even, one could say it, but everyone would know it. Like, here we are. Just listening to our voices, everyone's like, oh, these people were not meant for radio. These people were meant to be seen. <laughs> listen, I think we're doing great on the radio. People I, love to listen to these voices. They do. The, our, listen, we've got mellifluous voices, like butter, like velvet. I'm just mm-hmm. saying, as gorgeous as we are, as vibrant as we are, why limit us to this one medium where it's just our voices? I hear you. I see you. And I value you, friend. Yes. I'm Thank with you, you so much. On all of those accounts. Chikatita, nothing's wrong. Let's get into this. So for those of you who don't know, what is Mamma Mia about? Mamma Mia is the Shakespearean tale. One could argue it is actually quite Shakespearean. It is the tale of a mother and daughter. The mom has um, lived her best life and had sex with lots of men while she was a a rock star in uh, a girl group in the 70s. Um, And she uh, has gotten pregnant and had a child and she's not quite sure who the father is. And the daughter is getting married and she wants her dad to be there. And she finds out that her mother lived her best life and had lots of sex with wonderful men. And she asks all three of these men who could be her father to come to her wedding and hijinks ensue as all of the friends of the mom and the friends of the daughter and all three dads show up to figure out who's who, what's what, and who's getting married and who's not. Mm -hmm. I love that the show is so sex positive, considering that like it's about this kind of mix up. No one ever shames Donna for the three men back to back. It's 
it's great. I love that very much. I love it so much because I think the thing that I love the most about Mamma Mia is it almost feels like a revival in some ways because it is in the past. It takes place in a past that we cannot go back to, right? Mm -hmm. But it is still post-feminist, right? Like it is, it takes place in the 70s and it is super, super feminist in that it's women at the center of the plot. It's women who are not slut-shamed for having lots of sex with people and enjoying their lives. It's women who are in this position of power um, and they're never put down for being sexual people. They're never put down for being like romantic and lustful people. In fact, they're super celebrated for it at all ages. And I'm so, I'm so here for it. Yes. Me too. Uh, all ages and also like different uh, desires for their lives because we have, yeah. you know, Donna. And it also, it's very important to uh, say that Mama Mia kind of has to take place in 1999 because of the 20 year time jump of Sophie's birth. Like Sophie needs to have been born in the seventies. Donna needs to have been in her youth in the seventies. That is very important because also the band of which the music is uh, taken from is ABBA, which had their uh, rise in popularity in the seventies. And a lot of things that they reference in their songs are things that are prominent in the 70s. ABBA, for those of you that don't know, is a Swedish pop band. They were the first Swedish band to win Eurovision. And yep, they were. They were, they were. Uh, they won with Waterloo, which is one of their biggest hits. They had a slight dip the year after, but then they came back with a bang with Mamma Mia, our title <laughs> song here. Uh, and then just like kind of went hit after hit after hit. I think they kind of, they were, yeah, they were, they went strong from like 74 to 82. And then they broke up not because of anything traumatic they were just like i think we're good i think we like we we made like 40 or 50 hit singles uh we've made a lot of money we're very popular let's go out on top before we like degrade ourselves yeah and the name comes from the first initial of the four members agnetha i think is one of the, it's agnetha benny and bjorn are the, are the two men who also write all the songs and then agnetha and ani frid are the two main vocalists look at me with my swedish demeanor uh, ben, and B- ben and Bjorn uh, famously also wrote with Tim Rice, the score for chess. Chess! Which, and chess is important in the history of Mamma Mia because when chess was being conceived for the West End stage, Judy Kramer was an assistant on that original production and got very close with Benny and Bjorn and maintained that friendship throughout the 80s and the 90s. And working on chess also helped Benny and Bjorn when they did it on the West End and then took it to Broadway and it bombed super big on Broadway. Uh, and I'm saying all this as well because we're not going to cover chess on this series because while it does come from the West End, the production that opened on Broadway is not the production that opened in London. So it's not really an import. Uh, much as I would love to have an episode just discussing Judy Kuhn. But yes, <laughs> always, forever. Do that episode anyways. Who no, cares? I just, I just bring Judy Kuhn up in every episode because why wouldn't I? Um, you know what my nickname for Judy Kuhn is? What's your nickname for Judy Kuhn? Uh-huh. Perfect voice? Fos- Foscahontas. <laughs> Foscahontas. <laughs> Oh. Um, you know what I call her? A unicorn because uh, she got Tony nominated for the role of Cosette, which is near impossible to do. Correct. 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 Good on you, girl. We're getting sidetracked. Um, <laughs> Judy Kramer works on chess with Benny Bjorn. They learned their lesson by working on it on the West End and on Broadway that when it comes to the songs in a show, it has to be story first. Story is first, second, and third. Songs come after. Um, and Judy Kramer always sort of had it in the back of her brain that the songs of ABBA could work as a musical because she would kind of do these mental games with herself where she would like 
randomly make a playlist of ABBA songs and then she would have to try to find a way to like connect them with a story. And she always yeah. found that they would work somehow. Like the story could be good or bad, but she could always make a story out of it. Particularly, she said, uh, The Winner Takes It All was like the most like musical theater belty song. In it's a ballad. Yeah, it's it's such a ballad. Um, <laughs> and by the like mid nineties, ABBA had sort of become a bit of a pop culture joke because while they were extremely popular, they were like very mainstream pop music. And the nineties was like when sort of grungy rock was coming to play. Like this is the rise of Alanis Morissette, like those kind of, exactly those kind of singers and bands. So everyone's like, we want the real thing, man. We don't want your commercial factory made pop songs, man. And so ABBA was a bit of a cultural joke. Their big resurgence was in Muriel's Wedding, where they are used brilliantly. Flawlessly. Flawlessly. Mm-hmm. All I used to do was sit in my room and listen to ABBA songs, but now my life is as good as an ABBA song. Because of you, my life is Dancing Queen. It's so good. I'm so beautiful. Good. Tony Collette! Tony Collette! By Tony, Tony, first of all, if we ever do a revival, like right now, right here, right now, Tony Collette is Donna. I'm saying it right now. I'm ready for that. I'm so, re- my body is ready for that. Tony Collette can play all of the roles. Can, can Tony Collette just play all of, all of them? A one I mean, woman she did version United, of She did United States of Terror. So That's yeah, what I'm did. saying. The one woman Mamma Mia starring Tony Collette. Let's, let's do it. I'm ready. My body is ready. My body is so ready. I'm wide open for her. It's like Tony a share West Side Story moment. It's just Tony Collette doing all of Mamma Mia. Yes. Except like, I would give her an Oscar, an Emmy, a Grammy, and Tony for it. Whereas Cher, I would sit her down and be like, are you okay? But that's uh, honestly, I give the EGOT to share for the West Side Story. I, we can beg to differ on that one. <laughs> Full uh, EGOT. The sweet. Speak, well, speaking of share, Mamma Mia, here we go again. Mamma Mia, part one. So <laughs> getting so sidetracked. But I'll just say this Tony Collette can top me any day of the week if she wants to. Me too. So, <laughs> who can't who who can't that woman top? So Judy Kramer gets the idea to turn the Abba songs into a TV movie special starring Tina Turner for like the BBC. And she sends, I guess, sort of like um, a pitch uh, manuscript to Tina Turner because they, I, she kind of knew Tina Turner in a way of sort of like, oh, I know someone who knows her. We've met once or twice. Like, I'm, we're not friends, but she re- would know my name. Yeah. So she uses that connection to like stuff this pitch manuscript into Tina Turner's like personal mail. And then she gets a call from Tina Turner's agent like a week later being like, you can't do that. Uh, you can't just send Tina Turner something besides she doesn't want to do it. So then she goes to Benny and Bjorn. She's like, Tina said, no, uh, I'm thinking maybe a stage musical. Do I have your blessing? They're like, yeah, sure. Maybe don't like fuck with the songs too much. And she's like, great, great, great. We won't fuck with the songs too much. And she finds a fringe playwright and TV writer, Catherine Johnson, who was kind of hitting rocky times at this moment. She was a single mother, which is very important uh, while she was trying to look for new work. And she takes the meeting with Judy Kramer and Judy Kramer's like, I want to make a musical with ABBA songs. And Catherine Johnson's like, that sounds weird. And she's (laughs) like, yeah, what would you want to do? And she's like, well, let me take a look at all the songs. And she does. And she's like, oh, I think I can make a plot out of this. And she starts working with it. She does a couple of uh, tinkerings here and there with the lyrics. They hire Philida Lloyd to direct, who up until this moment was best known for doing Shakespeare and opera. So everyone was like, Philida Lloyd is doing an ABBA musical. It's similar to when Trevor Nunn, who was the artistic director of the Royal Shakespeare Company and had just done Macbeth and Nicholas Nickleby, they're like, he's directing a musical about cats. Cats? <laughs> And everyone was like, excuse me, excuse me. They go uh, into sort of, not, I don't say workshop mode. They, 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 work, they work on the material for about 
two years. It's a pretty streamlined process. They don't, they don't hit too many road bumps. They were able to get some money for it. Judy Kramer ended up similar to Andrew Lloyd Webber, mortgaging a lot of her property uh, to get the rest of the finances up and running. And they are set for a three-month stint at the Prince Edward Theater. And by the end of the first week of previews, they're, I think they're sold out at that point because uh, word of mouth in London had spread like, oh, this thing is a lot of fun. This is actually really good. And they end up extending it another three months and then another three months. And then it just becomes an open-ended run. They uh, open April 6th, 1999. They get nominated for four Olivier Awards, including Best Musical, but they lose to the Styles and Drew musical Honk based on the Ugly Duckling. Who does honk anymore but schools? No Colleges. I was going to say, colleges do honk. <laughs> colleges do honk. And summer camps do honk. Stage Door Manor loved to do honk. And Gavin Creel was in honk, so people still listen to the album. Sometimes. Yes, he did it at, what's the theater? I think it's the theater in Boston, North Shore Music Theater. Is that? I think it was North Shore. I'm pretty sure it was North yeah, Shore. Yeah, because it was in the round. There's a video of him doing yeah. it in the round. Uh-huh. Uh, so that's that's all my brain goes to. Gavin Creel did a show once in the round. And well, now. that's going to be a tie-in to something else. Okay, okay, here we go, here we go. Uh, A lot of critics did point out the likeness of the plot to a movie from the 60s called Buena Sera, Mrs. Campbell, which was also turned into a musical, Carmelina, in the 70s. Very similar plot, just in terms of, you know, a woman has raises a a daughter on her own, and there are three possible dads. The difference is that- um, It's in Italy. It's in Italy. (laughs) It's in Italy, not Greece. And also the mom is kind of finagling the circumstances in Buenos Aires, Mrs. Campbell. She's um, an Italian woman who slept with three different GIs during World War II. And they all go back to America. And then she informs each of them that they are the father of her child. So she gets checks from them over the years to help support her kid. And the the humor in the movie is like, she doesn't really have a job yet. She lives in splendor. And everyone's like, how does she live in splendor? And she claims that her husband died, which is why she goes by the name Mrs. Campbell, because she saw a Campbell soup can. And she's like, I'm Mrs. Campbell. And mm-hmm. then the GIs come in for a an army reunion in Italy and chaos ensues. So basic premise is the same. Three possible American dads or three possible dads with a woman in, you know, uh, a very lustful country. Picturesque. Everything else, everything else, picturesque country. Everything else is different. It then has its North American premiere in Toronto, starring Louise Pitre and Tina Madigan, uh, and then goes on a year-long uh, tour that we discussed. Uh, opens in Los Angeles, then San Francisco, then Chicago. I, mean, I feel like it won one other place. Maybe Philadelphia? Don't quote me on that, though. I don't think so. I think it did the three U.S. stops. Yeah. Like, yeah, for like three or four months each, though. And help build buzz, make sure that they got some, you know, investment back on the show. And it was set to open October 18th, uh, 2001 at the Winter Garden Theater. It was going to be the first show to open the Winter Garden after Cats. So everyone was excited to see the refurbishment. It was really exciting. And they're in rehearsals. And then a little known national tragedy called 9-11 happens. And the entire city is distraught and in mourning. And... They there was talk of them not opening. They were like, do we even do this? This seems kind of crude to open this frilly show in the middle of this tragedy. And they reached out to um, since canceled man, Rudolph Giuliani, then mayor of New York. Now, you know, uh, he of the landscaping company (laughs) speeches. Uh, Four seasons, four seasons. 
<laughs> oh yes four seasons land- landscape uh i love that he was like no that was on purpose i'm like that was on purpose we we rented the four seasons landscaping Absolutely. exactly uh, mama mia uh meant to book the winter garden uh pool in orlando florida they didn't <laughs> they never meant to open at the winter garden on broadway no that's, that's silly that was not a booking mistake but they reach out to him and they're like, should we even do this? He's like, absolutely, your show is what New York needs. And boy, was it ever, because then it opens uh, and the reviews come out and we'll discuss about the reviews and the aftermath once we finish discussing the show a little bit. So what's like, okay, so when we talk Mamma Mia, what's the first thing you want people to know about this show? Like what's sort of like, I would assume because we both love it so much, we we tend to come and defend it a lot. Mm, and yes. I, there, I have a lot of shows that I love that I've had to defend. So I'm always a fighter about these kind of things. What would you say is something that people say disparagingly about this show that you then have to kind of be like, shut your face? I think the thing I hear all the time is like, Mamma Mia ruined Broadway because it brought, it made jukebox musicals work and it made them really popular. And so I hate it because of that. I mm. hear that all the time that it is like, the reason that we have jukebox musicals on Broadway, which it's not, by the way. It's not, it is and it isn't. It's not the first time Broadway has had jukebox on the stage. It is true that Mamma Mia got the jukebox musical to work, but we can't blame it because literally every jukebox musical that came out after Mamma Mia until Jersey Boys flopped. Correct. and if it weren't for Jersey Boys, I would argue that we wouldn't, that the Jukebox musical would have probably fully gone away. And then Jersey Boys came out and is just as big of a hit, uh, at least on Broadway, it's slightly less of a hit around the world. Uh, and that kind of revives the Jukebox musical, but then again, starts to die again. And then Beautiful comes out and now it's like really here to stay. I would actually argue Beautiful kind of ruined the Jukebox musical, but we'll get into that in a second. Well, and I think the difference is the thing that I actually really appreciate about Mamma Mia and its jukebox musical nature is what you were talking about before, is that it seamlessly ties the music into a story versus just like retelling the story of ABBA and like how ABBA became famous. It's not about ABBA. It's about ABBA because ABBA created a culture of like fun, bop, energy, magical, just like explosion of fun, good times. But what they did was they took music that is about like repetition and about nostalgia and about a feeling and they put that into an actual structured play about something versus taking music that is specific and just trying to create a feeling around it. And that's why I think Mamma Mia works so freaking well. So I reached out to a couple of the people I know who have done Mamma Mia and, uh, yeah. on Broadway and on tour. And it was like, anything you can tell me about sort of uh, what the direction you were you were given when you were doing the show, like what anything that, you know, on high, they kept telling you to think about when you're doing the show. And all my friends who played Sophia, the first thing they all said was straight tone, uh, which I thought was hysterical. <laughs> like that was the first, all my, all my Sophie friends, like, I, I text them all separately and they all said the same thing first. Oh, you have to straight tone for days. This is a no vibrato zone. This is mm-hmm. a no vibrato zone. Especially especially the uh, first song, I Have a Dream. They're like, oh, you're not allowed to vibrato that at all. It's I sure. have a dream. Like, no, no, no. Bless uh, them. 
the, the other thing they talked about was the attitude of performing the show was you want they wanted everyone to play a real person with one foot off the ground so mm. you're never a cartoon but you're also never doing like mother courage you know you want to play a person that the audience can relate to so they can be invested in the story but have that one foot off the ground so all the ridiculousness makes sense and doesn't like hit the audience on uh suddenly and go like wait a second what's going on here i've always said um i have an issue on broadway with quote-unquote entertainments only because i find the majority of them to be really poorly written uh really poorly structured and they those are shows that aren't jukebox musicals that try to get away with well we're not trying to break the mold we're not trying to be groundbreaking we're just trying to be a good time i'm like then you have to be extra smart about it because if you want me to shut off my brain you have to do all the work and mama mia i'd argue is a show that does that mama mia has done all the work for me so i don't have to think for a second Mamma Mia knows what it is. It's not trying to be anything that it's not. And this is my biggest critique with shows right now in general is like, know what theater you belong in and know what you are and honor it and don't apologize for it. Uh And I think Mamma Mia is a spectacle and it has never tried to not be a spectacle, but it's a spectacle with a heart. It's a spectacle that you can really get invested in the characters. And like you said, I love the like one foot off the ground thing because it's also, it's heightened, it's a heightened world and it honors the theatricality of the space like it lets you play in that space and it's not trying to deny that we are in a theater and we're telling a story and we're going to show different types of storytelling throughout this evening and you're going to get it you're going to get it but you don't have to think about it but you're going to get it you're going to understand when those noodles come out and they've got their little flippers on their feet like you're going to understand that this this is a heightened reality in someone's brain of what's really happening like Mm -hmm. but you're not going to know why you're just going to think it's fun okay and yeah you're going to think it's fun and it all just sort of fits in a really weird way. Cause like it's nothing feels shoehorned in, but also at the same time, if you know ABBA songs and you see the show for the first time, you you might sometimes laughingly roll your eyes. Cause it's like, Oh, of course this song goes here. Not in a way yeah. where you're like, Oh, there are, very, I mean, as I said, winner takes it all was like that one true moment where the entire audience collectively went, Oh my God. But I sent you actually um, two videos of this. One was the winner takes it all where they, yep. where you hear that reaction. The other one was Broadway where Louise Petra comes out. So um, the title song of Mamma Mia comes pretty early in the show. It's like maybe the fourth song that shows up fourth or fifth yep. song. And by this point, we've already established what Sophie is doing. She has invited all three men thinking also, by the way, like, Oh, I'll know my dad when I see him. And then <laughs> they show up and she's like, Oh shit. I have no clue. Uh, and of course, if you watch the movie, it's like, well, of course it's the Swede because Amanda Seyfried's the blondest woman alive, but that's, that's neither here nor there. So they show up. She has no idea. And she, How tells, old are you? <laughs> she tells them, don't tell my mom. Oh no, sorry. She's like, uh, she, they also think that Donna sent the invitations. She right. has not told them that she invited that. Oh, sorry. She tells them that she invited them once they show up. And then she was like, don't tell my mom. She's always talking about her friends from the old days. Uh, we're going to surprise her. It's going to be awesome. I know she's really going to love it. Just don't tell her anything. And they all, she goes off and then the guys are about to hide because Donna's coming. And then they try to find a spot. Bill, of course, the adventurer, he like can't find a spot anywhere. So he just stands in the middle of the like dining area. And he's like, I'll just wait for her to find me. Uh, <laughs> and Donna comes out. She's humming Fernando and she's working on something. And Bill's like, hey, Donna, she turns around and she's like, Oh my God, Bill, like so surprised. And then Harry pops out and Louise Petra does this great like double take. She's like, cause you know what's going on in her brain. She's like, 
what are the odds that two guys I fucked are both here on the same day? Like, she's like, huh. huh. And then Sam, the one who broke her heart, pops up and he thinks he's going to get the same reaction. He's like, hey. And then she looks at him and then the vamp from Mamma Mia begins. Bum, 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 bum. And the audience collectively laughs and gasps because they're like, oh my God, of course this is when this song pops up. And she just goes, you. I was cheated by you and I think you know when. It's one of those moments where like as a jukebox musical, especially in something where it's an original story, you're not telling like the story of ABBA, like you said. And um, that's also an important thing. Benny and Bjorn were like, don't tell our story. It's kind of boring. Like we like we made a big on Eurovision. That was exciting. And then like, I don't know, we just worked well together for a decade. Like there wasn't a lot of drama of the fact that like two of us got divorced, but we still made music. And in fact, <laughs> it created the winner takes it all, which right. like, <laughs> created one of our best songs. Yeah, he's like, don't tell our life story. So especially when you know that like, it's not, you don't know that the song is coming up. So it's like, in, whereas in Jersey Boys, the audience gets pumped when they know that Sherry's about to happen. Like they, they're like, oh, we all know Sherry was the first big song. When so they're like, okay, we found the song. Everyone's like, it's Sherry, it's Sherry, it's Sherry. So there's an excitement to that as opposed to Mamma Mia where you don't, the excitement is knowing that song's going to happen at some point, but not when. And yeah. then getting surprised and thrown. It's great. Or discovering a mom, like discovering an ABBA gem that you didn't even know was going to be your new favorite Bob. I think mm. that's also what's exciting about Mamma Mia is that like there were the people who went to see it who were obsessed with ABBA, who had the experience you're talking about. And then there are the people who knew nothing about ABBA or who knew like a little bit and realized like, oh my God, every single one of these songs is a bop. Every one of these songs makes me feel something. In fact, like they've been studied, like scientists have done studies on ABBA music and why people love it, which I think is fascinating. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think that's also the brilliance of the show is that like you could be a diehard fan and have that like, oh my God, it's happening. Oh my God, Dancing Queen is happening moment. Or you're like, I don't know this song, but it's about, yeah, yep. having the time of your life. Like it's, it's brilliant in that way. It's did brilliant. You, guys, did you hear that belt? She's been in the business since she was eight. <laughs> I'm Shut trying up. to mark for this podcast, but Kate has just stepped her... Uh, pussy up and therefore I must now do the same so next time I sing a song I will do it in my key and I will make sure I show up too we love we love a no marking lifestyle yes no not Carolee Carmel has never marked a day in her life so therefore I shan't thank you correct thank you. <laughs> um I was I would actually argue the one song that is kind of shoehorned in but the way that they do it in this show it's like a it's a joke which is Chikatita like yes Donna comes yes. in distraught. All these three men from her past, all her three possible fathers for Sophie show up and she goes into Tanya and Rosie's room. One of my favorite jokes is when Tanya tries to blow up the air mattress and she can't. And Rosie looks at her, she goes, blow, don't suck. And it's it's stupid and it's great and I love it so much. <laughs> um, Donna comes in distraught and she just like plops on the bed face first and there's a long pause. And then you hear a chord and you're not sure what's about to happen. And Rosie looks at Tanya, not knowing what to say. And then she looks at Donnie and she goes, Chiquitita, tell me what's wrong. I have never seen such sorrow. The intro is so stupid and the show is aware of that. So they really kind of like, rather than try to apologize for it, like you said, like they're kind of like, no, we get it. This one's a little shoehorned in. So we're kind of going to lean into it. So, you know, we get it. And yep. then by the end of the song, you're going to be okay with it. And it's the same with like take a chance at uh, not take a chance on me. <laughs> oh, that song fits perfectly. How dare you? <laughs> I was like, oh, this isn't a podcast about little women. No, but 
It is Take a Chance on Me. That is is the name of the song. What am I talking about? They're both called Take a Chance on Me. Little Women Stole the Title. (laughs) Jerks. We hate them. No, but I think they're, I do think that they know in that song that we're also going into another moment. There are multiple times throughout the show where the intro to the song is very much giving the audience time to react time to understand what's going on and not in like a traditional music, musical storytelling kind of way. Like it's not that I feel like so often in musical theater, we talk a lot about like when you can't speak anymore, you sing. And like the music is like the underpinning moment, the underscoring moment to get you to that place where your emotions are so heightened. You have to sing. And I feel like in Mamma Mia, everyone has to sing all the time. We always live at that heightened moment. So Mm -hmm. sometimes the intro just like gives us a second as the audience to catch up to where they are and lets the joke land. Absolutely. Oh, no, absolutely. That is very true. Um, (laughs) It might not be. That's fine, too. No, no. Well, in terms of like how musical theater works, it is supposed to be um, when it comes to songs in musical theater, it's supposed to be either you learn something new about the character or something has happened in the plot or something has changed in the environment. Like a song should not be this like nothing should be the same uh, at the end of the song as it was in the beginning of the song, at least in terms of those three things like maybe yes we take a moment in the plot to stop but we learn something new about the character and so on and so forth musical comedy can kind of get away with not doing that as long as uh it either it keeps the momentum going it doesn't like stop the action completely and i actually would argue a lot of musical comedy songs you don't learn a ton about the character sometimes but things happen in the plot in the song like musical comedies tend to use songs as a way to sort of fast forward on the plot a bit um doesn't really do that but that's also because the plot is pretty simple so they allow so they allow the songs to sort of be um uh moments of introspection on the characters ways to sort of uh, strengthen our understanding of relationships so when we get back to the plot like we weirdly have slightly like more investment in it than we realized like we did beforehand but it's like a weird balance too because it's also not like these songs are commenting on the moment in the show like i feel like in shows like spring awakening Lots of times the song is kind of a, it's, it's makes you feel an emotion and it's commenting on the action that we've either just seen or we're about to see, but it doesn't necessarily like further the character's plot. I feel like Mamma Mia is this weird magical balance where it's not actually like taken out of context and commenting on what we've just seen most of the time. It still is furthering the plot, but we're not getting a moment of like Rose's turn, right? Like we're not having this like, where's mine? Get off of my runway. Like it's not that moment. It is, and that is why I think it's weirdly kind of timeless because it is uniquely crafted in its own magical little way. It breaks a lot of the rules of like traditional musical theater storytelling. Yeah, and it also has one foot in the 70s and one in the 90s, which helps yes. make it timeless. And that's something that Katherine Johnson talked about with the book. She was like, the first thing I knew was that we needed to have two main characters of different ages because half of ABBA songs are about young love and half of them are about lost love. Whoop. Hitting our Sorry. mics. Uh, she's like, half of ABBA songs are about lost love. Half of ABBA songs are about young love. And I wasn't allowed to overhaul the lyrics. I could make like a tweak here and there, but I wasn't allowed to like completely rewrite something. So she's like, the only way I could do that was if I had characters of different generations. And that led into the mother-daughter relationship, which she had at that time being a single mother. And by having sort of like the, the mentality of young love at the present, the present being 1999, and then Lost Love of the 70s, it had, that sort of is what gives it that timeless energy because it it just, it flip-flops between decades. So it never feels 
so much ingrained in like one cultural moment. Um, mm-hmm. There's a there's a joke, not a joke, but a, uh, like kind of a quip that a lot of um, people I know say when they were alive in the 60s and going to see theater in the 60s, uh, my dad, my editor, uh, people like that, they always like to say, uh, Promises, Promises was so current that it became dated a week after it opened. And uh, was able to sort of run for a while because of, you know, the innovations of it all. And because Jerry Orbach is a national treasure, but that's another thing. And and because Turkey Lurkey time slaps no matter what decade you're in. There it is. (laughs) But that's it. Like, they were so concerned with making it like the most modern show and like the Mm. most culturally relevant that references became dated pretty soon into the run. And that is something that I also think about with things like um, Legally Blonde, much as I love it has all these pop culture references that are already becoming dated and aren't like aren't the punchlines that they were and i i rem- i don't know if you remember this there was a time around the legally blonde era like from 2004 to 2012 where punchlines and musical comedies were like product placement slash like pop culture references it wasn't like yes. a it wasn't plot driven. It wasn't character driven. It was like someone would be like, oh, you know, and like this movie thing here. And everyone's like, ah, we all know it because that just came out two years ago. And now like Gen Z is like, I don't know what that, I know is. What that means. Yeah. 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 So those shows have become dated. Mamma Mia is timeless in that way. And Mamma Mia doesn't, I don't think makes any like major pop culture references other than like the flower power. That's really it. Well, and also it was like so brilliantly originally costumed in that way too. And that it's like, it could be 1999. It could be like 2046. It kind of looks like strange space costumes. It could be 1972. It could be 1919. Who knows? It's it's brilliantly not so costumed in a way that it feels like it has to be exactly one place, one thing, one time. Yeah, um, yeah. Which I think is also really genius when we look at all the different tech elements as well and how it was originally produced. Um, it made it so that it was relatable to audiences of all ages. And that I think is why it endures, that you can do it at any regional theater across the country and produce it in lots of different ways and it still works. Yeah, I mean, that set is pretty simple. And part of yeah. that I think was cost effective. They, don't, they didn't have a ton of money, but sure. it, you know, it also, by making it sort of so abstract, both the set and the costumes, like, again, as you said, it makes it sort of take place anywhere. Yeah, uh, like it doesn't feel very much like Greece in the stage show, at least in the way it's originally designed. Um, it just sort of feels like this big blue oasis, mm-hmm. and that sort of with painted stones on the floor. <laughs> well, n- they didn't used to be just painted stones; they used to light up, and then they transferred to theaters, and they don't do that anymore. When it was at the Winter Garden back when, like, they light up? When- I don't even remember that. So, okay, the two things there are a couple of things about. Mamma Mia that I miss because when they started make like cutting costs even further that show was never like a huge spectacle but there was sort of a fluidity to it all that allowed the silliness to kind of thrive one was that the uh sets were um on tracks uh hydraulics they uh and then when they moved to the Broadhurst I think some of it was still on hydraulics but then they had cast members start pushing things on and it was a little less magical in that way but also the floor the stones on the floor lit up during voulez-vous and gimme 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 like they during the disco stuff they became like purple and green and blue and then the wooden um platform the dock thing that they mm-hmm. had in the middle of the stage used to rise so during thank uh during um name of the game 
it would rise and it, uh, it also rose during uh, Rosie and Tanya's entrance at the beginning of the show. Like these tiny little things when you're like, that's not like, it's no, you know, tire lifting in cats. But once it's taken away, you're like, oh, I, I didn't realize like how those small details like added to the like spectacle of this thing that felt like not a spectacle beforehand. And yeah. now it's like, oh, now it just sort of feels a little slightly like the, the, the air has been taken out of the tires just a little bit. Yeah. Well, and if we talk about our characters are supposed to live with one foot off the ground, it's those tiny details that actually make that seem true, right? Mm-hmm. If things are lifting, if things are lighting up that wouldn't normally light up, that is what allows us to believe that these characters are grounded in their own reality. Even if it's not the reality we exist in, they do live honestly in their reality that they're creating. Oh, yes. So by this point, people ha- will have listened to the Noises Off episode, but I did record it yesterday. Uh, <laughs> something that I talked about in that episode is like, what makes comedy work the best is what's happening is not funny to the character. They are in hell usually. And that is what's funny to us. The moment you start like winking to the audience as an actor being like, I'm actually smarter than my character just so you know. And it's like, yeah, no duh. Uh, What makes the comedy work is that the character is not doing smart things. And I've even said like most stories or most successful stories is about a character making the wrong decision for 95% of the time. And then in the last 5% of the story, they finally make the right decision. That's usually what happens. And there are like variations on it, but that's the consistency. So when people like talk about shows either being problematic or a character being problematic or actors trying to comment on a character to show like, I, the actor, am not like this. It's the character that's like this. It's like, I'm I'm out of it. I'm out of it. This is one of the things that like I... I always coach when I'm working with actors is like, if you think you're smarter than the lyric, you're wrong. Mm -hmm. Because if you think you're smarter than the lyric, you are not living truthfully in the world of this character's like life. If you are commenting on what is being said, then it is actually not the truth. And you will never be able to find the right choice. You will never find your way in. And so that's why a lot of people that I work with, like they go into audition for Mamma Mia and I'm like, you're not going to get this show because you, you think you're smarter than this show. You think that you are smarter than this show and it will show Every time you open your mouth to do that money, money, money packet that has been sent to you, because if you can't truthfully just realize that this is who these people are and this is how they navigate the world, then you're never going to book it. You're never going to book it. And the audience doesn't want to see you do it. That doesn't mean you're not talented. It means they don't want to see you do it because you are not buying into the world. You're condescending to the material and the audiences came to see the material and they don't want to be condescended to. Uh, My friend Elena, who was the last Sophie on Broadway, she said that um, when she was sort of in final callbacks for the role, because she was in the ensemble for a while and then sort of went in for Sophie on a whim and she booked it. But when she's in final callbacks, they kept on reminding her, uh, this character is optimistic. She is truthful. Uh, Don't try to like, you know, uh, search for comedic moments because they will just come naturally from the story. Uh, and then to her credit, she found a brilliant comedic moment that I have applauded her for ever since. But we'll get to that uh, when we get to the act one finale. Uh, mm, it's not the act one finale. Second to last, third to last number of the act of act one. So like the middle of act one. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's, it's not the act one finale. It's, you know, it's the opening. It's, it's, the it's over- just like, it's the like show. in act one. <laughs> Which, when, um, when she's greeting the audience, you know, into the theater it was that moment. No, um, <laughs> no, it's during um, uh, Gimme, Gimme, Gimme. She had a really great line delivery that I was like, bitch, I don't think I've seen a Sophie do that before. And I, <laughs> it's hysterical. Um, and she wasn't even commenting on it because again, it was so truthful to the moment. And I was like, yeah, no, like I've been there before when I, when I've made this slip up and eh, fuck it, I'll just say it anyway. We're off, we're so off uh, structure at Sophie's bachelorette party. Yes. 
after Super Trooper. The hen the- party? The hen party. Sorry, That's the hen all party. That's it is. Thank you. Sorry, the hen party. The hen and- party and stag night? Okay. Yeah, ha- ha- Sky's having a stag night and Sophie's <laughs> having her hen party. I also love that Sophie's hen party is far more wild than Sky's stag night. Oh, of course. And, and that they just, the stag night is them being like, mm, the hen party's better. Like, let's go, let's go do that. Literally. Yeah. <laughs> they're like, uh, screw the whole, like, they're not supposed to mix. Just like, you know, we we went scuba diving. You got the necklace. They're going, they're getting drunk and dancing and groping older men. Let's get over there. Like, let's it's- great um but sophie has moments with each of the dads in gimme gimme uh where the cat kind of gets out of the bag about the situation first one is sam when you know she's covering her tracks because she's like oh like oh i know you didn't just hang out with my mom he's like okay what'd she tell you oh nothing she never mentioned you he's like no you said she's always talking about us what's going on and then you know she gets pulled away and then she has harry and then she has bill bill we find out that um she lived with his great aunt for a time. And when she died, left Donna money to make, to start the inn. And Bill's like, oh, I heard her money only went to family. Wait a second. How old are you? 20. Uh, <laughs> so that's why the aunt gave them the money. Cause she believed that Sophie was her uh, great niece. But with Harry, there's a moment when they're dancing and they're talking about, you know, um, having children. He would like to have had children, but he never had them and he thinks it's too late now. And he says, oh, uh, is your dad here? And Sophie says, I don't know. Most Sophies do like a beat. They're like, I don't know. I don't know who my dad is. What Elena did, and she's not listening to this, but I'll say, hey, Elena, good job, girl. Um, She's dancing with Harry and they're like having a good time. And he's like, oh, I would have spoiled my daughter rotten if I had one. She goes, oh, lucky thing. And they're dancing and they're laughing. And he goes, is your dad here? And Elena went, oh, I don't know. And (laughs) she went, I don't know. And she did that line reading. And I guffawed alone in a 1200 seat theater and then went backstage. It was like, how dare you be funny? But yeah, that's an that's an example where she found a line delivery that was so funny, but so in like ingrained in the character and the story. Yeah, that's why she booked the role. Yeah, that is exactly why she booked the role, especially that far into the run. Like mm-hmm. you got to find people who are going to play with it and who are going to find magical moments. That's exactly why she booked it. Fierce, yeah. live. Well, I mean, we have you know actresses like Allison Case and Christy Altamar playing the role. You know, midway through the run, these like actresses who find interesting things to do. Erica Henningsen. Yeah. When did Erica Henningsen do it? Erica Henningsen did it on the national tour. I think she did it on Broadway. F- find that out. because I'm Googling it right now as we're talking. I, I promise you I didn't I, make that up. I hate that I know so much about Erica Henningsen's career because I'm almost positive her debut was in Les Mis. Because uh, I saw her go on as Fontaine. When, uh, I think it was two years into the run because I went to go see Melissa Mitchell play Cosette because Melissa Mitchell was also... Uh, on Baking It on Broadway, which for those of you who are uh, new to the podcast, new to me, was my old web series back in the day where I would bake with Broadway actors. Half of them were newsies. And uh, Melissa came on and then I saw her gone for Cosette and I saw Erica Henningsen as Fontaine. And I was like, for a 25-year-old, you're doing a really great job with this role. She was fantastic. Um, uh, I'm wrong. She played it at the CLO, I think. Maybe I'm trying to Google this as we're talking through Listen, that is still just as legit as any professional Broadway theater. It's honestly- <laughs> well, not if I'm saying she did it on Broadway. 
But Pittsburgh no, CLO, she, honestly, it's just as hard to book as any Broadway show. So if you play- That the, is accurate. If you play- Mamma Mia at the CLO. I'm sorry, Erica. I sorry. messed up your resume, even though I, I know your resume. Oh, Lord, honey. Oh, honey. I'm sure she did a great job. She is, she is very much a Sophie. She would have been a great Sophie. Yeah. Um, Sophie is a hard role to cast because people think it's like a bland ingenue. And like, mm. yes, you want to find someone who's very engaging and bubbly and like could be in a L'Oreal commercial, but they also need to be charismatic and like make interesting choices as well. Yes. Yeah. Yes. You watch Erica and- Henning, uh, not Erica Henningsen, you watch Chrissy Altamar on YouTube do Under Attack. And like, she's not interested in being cute. And while Anastasia was not my favorite show, I gave her a lot of credit for not like trying to be a cute Anya. And mm-hmm. I really liked seeing that same mentality when her Mamma Mia performance. Well, and we have to know that part of that is there under Sophie's care. Like Sophie makes a choice at the end. And I'm sure we'll talk about that later. And I don't want to skip ahead since I've already ruined all of the like structure of your podcast. But like Sophie makes a big choice at the end of this show. And we have to believe that there's a brain there, that there is someone who is willing to like make tough choices and do the the not easy thing. And mm-hmm. so like, you're right. You have to find someone who has a backbone, but who's also completely and utterly optimistic that her life is going to turn out how she wants it to be. That's hard to cast. Yeah. That is like a contemporary Nellie Forbush. And that is hard to find. It's also hard to find because Sophie's mentality for much of the show is she wants a domestic life. She Mm -hmm. wants to be married. She wants to have children. Like she doesn't want to be uh, super adventurous or at least she thinks she doesn't. She wants to settle down. She wants to create like a very leave it to beaver life, which a lot of young actresses, I don't think, might be able to relate to as easily um, these days. Uh, it's it's very easy to judge her for that. But sure. part of the reason why she wants that is because she came from a single mother household. And like while her mom and she have a great relationship, that part about her never knowing her father has always sort of nagged her. And she sees people growing up with quote unquote whole families. And that has always been a sticking point for her. And And being, and also it's important to remember that she is young. She is 20. And with that sort of uh, idealism, she's not always able to appreciate just how magical her life has been. Uh, Literally living on a Greek island. On Uh, a magical Greek island for all intents and purposes. mm -hmm. Where like everyone's singing and dancing where she meets the hunkiest of men who's like just so in love with her. Could not Mm -hmm. be sweeter. Like the sweetest straight man alive probably. The sweet, or sorry, I should say, the sweetest straight man with abs alive. Yeah, because um, usually straight men with abs like Sky, not the most, not the kindest. Usually, they're more interested in their six pack than they are in you. I've had that experience. Yes, I, I will. I will say that. Though I have known many a wonderful man with uh, with six pack abs as well, and many a wonderful human with six pack abs. Listen, six- I I I would argue. Uh, more straight men with six packs are nicer than gay men with six packs. So I will, I will allow that. You made that argument and I'm listening to it. <laughs> it's, honey, it's not an argument. I looked at my files, I saw the evidence and I said, my conclusion is such. I feel like he was like Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen with the like spy glass being like, I figured out the mystery. Michelle Trachtenberg and Harriet the Spy. Yes, yes, for sure, 100%. Yep. Uh, 
I also really weirdly love Sophie's top at her hen party. The like, the like her... knit crocheted one. Yeah. Yes, is... with the fringe. Yeah. Well, it's like yes. I I never know what it is because like it it either looks like fringe or it looks like the largest sequins imaginable. Sure, sure. I feel like yeah. they were sewn onto the like knitted experience. Yes, and it's the very actually early two thousands. Every girl who was my age in the early two thousands had a purse that was made of those exact like sequin things they're like a plastic disc and we all had purses that we got at the mall that looked just like Sophie's top real talk it's it's truly my favorite article of clothing in that show in a show where there's not a lot of clothing I would personally want I was like I'd I'd wear that I'd wear that in drag or in life I would wear that mega mix like any of those costumes any and all of them the like body suits with the boots but you uh, you wouldn't have to pay me a cent I'd wear that down the street I want that all the time I have worn that down the street. I believe it in P Town. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna wear that in P Town. I'm sure they have them for sale all over the place there. What? Okay, so, what is like a favorite moment of yours in Mamma Mia? It's a song. It's Super Trooper. Period. Oh, the end. Love it. The end. It. I mean, like we all are waiting for it. The audience is waiting for it. We are waiting for this Donna and the Dynamos moment. It's also this beautifully like. It's this gift that Donna is giving her daughter, which I think is so sweet and so lovely. But also Super Trooper is just such a bop. It's so good. And it leads into this entire like 20 minute master. It, like that whole, from Super Trooper to the end of act one is just chef's kiss. Yeah, it just keeps moving. I love in the movie when they're doing the announcement and Amanda Zyfried realizes what's about to happen. And she, and she goes, ah! Yeah, because it's, it might be in the show too. Cause obviously like Sophie knows Rosie pretty well like Rosie has come back to the island a couple yeah. of times Tanya hasn't been there in a couple of years uh but like you know she knows them and specifically knows their relationship with Donna and knows about yeah. the band and all that uh and it's never like explicitly stated that she's like my mom used to be in a rock band like she knows these two women and then I just love that moment where she screams knowing what's going to happen because that you as the audience understand that she knows about this and is like, this is all she's ever wanted. And it's finally it's so happened. much joy. Yeah. yeah. And like it's the only so hint real. that we've seen in both the stage version and the movie, the only hint that we like know about it is when they do the like dynamo dynamo and they do their thing. And also like posters on the wall, mm. like show posters of mm-hmm. them in silhouette, but like, that's it. And so you have no idea what it's going to be. And I just, I love it. I love that. I love that moment so very much. Um, oh my god! I also love that Sophie like is never embarrassed by her mom. Never. Like they have art. They have an argument in Act Two. They got that big old argument. But like, I feel like a lesser show would have her be like more embarrassed. Like maybe even uh, like you know, like happy embarrassed mm. with the dynamos coming out. But like it is, as you said, it's pure joy when she realizes what's about to happen. She doesn't like. She, her she knows her mom is. She knows her mom is an icon and everyone on the island also thinks her mom is an icon. Like that's mm. the other thing is everyone at that party, no one is embarrassed. Everyone is like, oh, fuck yeah, we have been living for this moment and we're so excited to see it. Yeah. Everyone which also family. I think makes my other favorite moment even more poignant, which is slipping through my fingers, which I think is such a beautiful moment. And mm. it's so earned in this show. It's so completely earned. And I think it's because we do know that Sophie like truly idolizes her mother in a lot of ways. And also you were talking earlier about how Sophie like, um, has wanted to be this mother, this figure, this like stay in one place. And I think so much that of that comes from this desire to take care of her mother. Like mm-hmm. she wants to stay on that island to take care of Donna because Donna took care of her. And mm-hmm. so slipping through my fingers is just this most, it, first of all, it's a beautifully crafted song. It's mm-hmm. just a beautiful song, hands down. But that moment 
especially them looking in the mirror ah! and just like anyone who goes to see this show, I saw it with my mother and it is, it's powerful. Like I, I don't know how else to explain that moment other than the fact really it's powerful. super powerful in a show that you don't go into thinking like, oh, we're going to have really powerful moments here where I'm going to cry holding my mom's hand in the Winter Garden Theater. And then there's a great moment. It's in a musical that has so much cheesiness in it. There is a very lovely moment with Sophie and Donna when Sophie, like, she doesn't have necessarily doubts about the wedding. And it's very clear that, like, Donna doesn't necessarily approve of this wedding happening, not even because she doesn't believe in marriage. She just thinks Sophie's too young. Uh, and has keeps encouraging Sophie, like, you should go out and, like, see the world. I love Sky. You two should totally be together. Like, maybe just don't get married yet. Um, and then she's, you know, accepts it and she's putting her in the dress. And Sophie says, like, do you think I'm letting you down? Everyone, everyone talks about how, like, your mom's so amazing, raising me all alone. And Donna reveals, well, I had no choice. My mother dis uh, disowned me when uh, she found out I was pregnant. And Sophie, this is new information to Sophie. Yeah. And it's a very Gilmore Girls moment. Like when, um, yeah. when Rory, do you remember in Gilmore Girls when, uh, they try to like have a dinner with Christopher and Christopher's parents and it like yep. goes so disastrous. And basically Rory just keeps on hearing from Christopher's parents, like how she was the worst thing that ever happened. She was a mistake. She ruined his life. And uh, Emily comes in uh, later as like, as the evening is basically just completely become a shit show. And she's trying to like brush it off. And then just sees how upset Rory is. And she basically like looks at her in the eyes. She goes, you're not a mistake. You are so, we are, um, she, I, she thinks like you weren't planned, but like you could not have been like the uh, more welcome in our lives. Like we are. Kelly so Bishop delivers an iconic monologue that Kelly, says, Rory yeah. Gilmer, you are the best thing that has ever happened to us. Yes. Kelly Bishop is the spine of that show. And it's a very similar thing with Donna and Sophie yeah. where like you, every Sophie I've seen when she finds out that like her mom was disowned because she was pregnant, like she gets, she gets worked up about it all of a sudden. And Donna's like, no, 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 no. don't cry. Don't you dare cry. Like I am this all could not have worked out better uh, if I had planned it. And the fact that I didn't plan it, like just goes to show who I am. Like it's wonderful. And then that leads Sophie to finally say, will you give me away? Cause she wants her dad uh. to give her away. And then she goes, no, my mom's going to give me away. And then if that weren't enough, we have Sam Carmichael coming on in being a man saying he's supposed to give Sophie away and telling Donna it's about them. And Donna just goes, I don't want to talk about things we've gone through though it's hurting me now it's history it's brilliant uh, what's it's your favorite moment of the show i mean that's one of my favorite moments uh my favorite i don't know what is my favorite moment in the show uh super troopers up there i you know what i really weirdly love and i didn't love it as a kid and i love it now yeah. Uh, is in the show Our Last Summer between Donna and Harry. I love that. I'm so glad you brought that up. Yes, tell me why. Why is that your favorite? First moment? of all, this is all, all of this takes place in Donna's bedroom. We're like talking about the... Yeah. It's so, again, in a show that has like a lot of 
big campy moments. It is very simple and it's them reminiscing as friends and not necessarily as lovers. Whereas with like Donna and Sam, there's all this romantic baggage. And with Bill, he has baggage with Sophie now, like with his grandmother, his great aunt and all this stuff. Harry's just happy to be there. Um, And we'll find out why later. He's happy to be there. We'll find out why later, but he like wants to do right. He thinks that he's Sophie's dad too. And so he's, he wants to help pay for the wedding. And then he and Donna just like, they have the song our last summer, which is like, they just reminisce about the last time they really saw each other, which is like when they were in Paris for a summer and like just had fun. And they, and there's no uh, strings attached about it. And I just love moments like that. It's very, um, uh, I remember it well in Gigi. It is. It's exactly that. Yeah. Where it's just like two people who like had a past and they have no regrets, but also like they're not together anymore. And it's just, it's so, you don't see that relationship between a man and a woman very often in dramatic works. It's a really interesting relationship to have. And obviously we find out with Mamma Mia, the reason for that is, spoiler alert, Harry's actually gay. Donna's the last woman he's ever slept with. Or the only woman he's ever slept with. Only woman, yeah. Only woman. He came out pretty soon after that and lives a very happy life, but he's always regretted never having children, which is why he- He has uh, the dogs. Yes, he has the dogs. Um, (laughs) But yeah, it's, I don't know, it's just a really lovely moment. I like it a great deal. I can still recall I love that two of our favorite moments in this show are really deeply rooted in simplicity. And I think that's another reason why Mamma Mia works because uh-huh. it knows what it is, but it also gives you these really grounded moments for these characters that you care about. And the music serves those moments. It totally does. On top of that, if we're Mama talking Mia. about like, Mamma Mia, if we're talking about straight up bops that I'm like, yes, bitch work. One of my absolute favorites is does your mother know? Especially because, do you oh, know the do you know the origin of the actual song of the ABBA song? No, I don't. So when ABBA sang it, it was I believe it was Benny who sang it. It was when like Benny and Bjorn rarely sang solo in ABBA stuff, and yeah. this is one of the cases where one of them did, and it was him singing to a female fan and it was inspired because when ABBA became so huge, like obviously they had fans everywhere. They had groupies everywhere. And like young women would throw themselves at Benny and Bjorn. And they were like, no, like these are the two, the only two straight men in pop music who had like 18 year old female fans coming at them. And they were like, absolutely not. You are too young. Get out of here. Um, Especially in the seventies. Like if you watch almost famous, you know that these guys like who aren't Benny and Bjorn, like slept with these, teenage groupies all the time so for Benny and Bjorn mm? band-aids in band-aids. almost famous they're called band-aids okay yeah sorry sorry band-aids yes groupies <laughs> sleep with the band band-aids inspire the band oh thank you so much you're welcome and if you ever get lonely you can go to the record store and visit your friends oh it's like that's a great famous. great screenplay uh I look forward to that musical coming in eventually Me but too. anywho what was I saying oh um so does your mother know they wrote this song basically about their teenage fans being like you like you're trying to act older than you are and it's like it's cute but like no I'm not interested and I love that song it's really wholesome in that way and then Mamma Mia they flip it on its head by reversing the genders and it's Tanya singing it to a 20 year old Pepper who's like I'm into older women you're hot let's get it on one of the cringy jokes in him she's like I'm old enough to be your mother and he goes well then call me Oedipus and it's like 
yeah. Pepper, Pepper's that guy in school who did not read Oedipus, but he heard like the basic gist of it. So he, he uses it as a reference. And you're like, do you know what happens in Oedipus? They both die. Like he does your mother body. know you're stupid. Does your, does your mother know you're basic? Um, you're basic. You're basic. Get to get to step in Pepper. Uh, <laughs> but so Tanya sings, does your mother know to him when, and the tone of it is very much, she was like, because they kind of make out at the hen party. It's implied like Tanya got very, very drunk. Pepper's a snack. And she's like, eh, you know, fine. We'll make out a little bit. But then the next day Pepper's like, I want to take this further. And she's like, absolutely not. And she sings this basically to prove to him, like, not only am I out of your league, like you, you could not handle me for a day. I would break you in half. Trend of the podcast, bringing it back to sex in the city. It is Samantha Jones sleeping with young Sam Jones and ruining his life. It's great. It's also brilliant because I think some of Abba's music, if we're being really honest, is super misogynistic. And mm-hmm. I think Mamma Mia took some of those moments and like flipped them on their ass and like made songs that were misogynistic to begin with, somewhat like these female empowerment moments. And I think that's brilliant. I think it's absolutely yeah. brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Um, I don't know if I would say Does Your Mother Know inherently is misogynistic only because of the age discrepancy. It'd be a little different if he was talking to like a woman who is his contemporary. Like when you're a 40 year old pop icon and 17 year old girls at the stage are being like, I want to blow you. He's like, does your mother know you talk like that? Like it's. I hear you. But if not everybody knows the context of the song, then the lyrics without understanding that context as a woman, if I hear those lyrics of a very popular song. Um, if I don't know the context that it was like written, oh, bye. It was written for <laughs> my microphone just fell apart. Everyone Whoops. listening, um, written for like children. Then I read that as like, I'm a big girl. I get to make my own decisions. Like absolutely fair. That is oh, absolutely yeah. fair. I also say in gay context, uh, I wish there were some older gay men who would adopt that mentality sometimes when it comes to younger gentlemen. So I think there's a happy middle ground to be had, um, is your, are, have you completely fucked up your screen for your mic? <laughs> I don't know why it just went away. My pop screen went away. It's fine. We're doing fine. The microphone is still working. We're all good. Your, your peas are just going to pop extra hard. That's all. You're welcome, America. There you go. <laughs> um, yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. I, there is definitely a middle ground between that and that, uh, which isn't English, but everyone knows what I'm talking about. Uh, that and that. Uh, no, I, it's, yeah, it's a great moment in the show. It's very ingeniously repurposed. Christine Baranski national Queen icon absolutely and i love at the end she's like "Ooh, girls we done good what and then she th- does the and they all fall down mm-hmm. what are your thoughts on the movie i love the movie i am an unabashed fan of the movie i think there are huge flaws with the movie i think that there are brilliant changes in the movie i think mm-hmm. that pierce brosnan singing sos makes me giggle Every time I see it. There are the separate days. This seems a while to find. SOS. Like, it's yeah. just. <laughs> down. Like, oh, God, Pierce, come on. But I giggle every time. It's just, It brings me joy in its own way. It, it has its own uh, entertainment now in the same way of, like, Dick Van Dyke's Cockney accent and Mary Poppins is awful. Yes. But, like, it's now become so ingrained in the DNA of that movie that you watch it knowing that, that it's a part of it and it makes it enjoyable in its own right. I also just watched that movie and I think there's so many like legend, there's so many incredible actors in that movie who have had these incredibly prolific careers. And I just watched that movie and I think the reason it brings me so much joy is because they just had the fucking time of their life. Mm-hmm. Like you watch them in that movie, living their best lives, being silly and playful and just like 
not having to make Sophie's choice, right? Ironically, considering Sophie is making a choice, um, but like they're not having to do that. And you just see Meryl Streep free and having so much fun. And so I think that movie, it's one of those movies, I remember seeing it in the theater. I saw it on 42nd Street. I went with my friend Rory. Love you, Rory. You're in Ireland now. Um, and we went and we were like, this is going to be a hot mess express, but we are paying full price to see this movie. And we left that movie being like, we know that was the shit. Like, should we go see it again? Because the audience had a blast. Like uh-huh. we were all laughing at it. We were all laughing with it. We all wanted to live in it. Like we all wanted to live in that movie to the point now where one of the number one trending things this summer on TikTok was like Mama Mia summer. Like people, this movie came out over a decade ago and people are still sitting here wanting a hashtag Mama Mia summer. They want to live their best Donna Sheridan lives. And I just think it's, again, it was a brilliant translation to a cinematic version of storytelling that knew exactly what it was. It wasn't trying to be anything other than exactly what Mamma Mia is. And I think the brilliance was they brought the same director in to tell the story and to translate it. It's the exact same team. Uh, Catherine Johnson did the screenplay and I think Judy Kramer did uh, produce it as well. And they said um, they waited a really long time to sell the movie rights. They waited until it was not only a hit in London, but a hit in New York and a hit in other countries. Like they wanted to make sure that Hollywood knew that they knew what they were doing with this material. So when they sold it, they were like, we're going to make the movie and you're going to let us because we have proven that we know what's up and like we have sold this to the world um so we'll sell the movie as well i love the movie too i okay i actually had this thought today on the treadmill listening to the soundtrack because i was like getting myself in the mode for it because i'm recording cats tomorrow so i was listening to cats this morning uh for research and i was like i need to get this out of my brain as i record mamma mia yeah i listened to the london cast recording there's no broadway cast recording sadly uh then i listened to the soundtrack for the movie and something that always bothered me about the movie originally was that it technically speaking never felt that well made. It was like, sure. yeah, like Amanda Zyfried is on a Greek island and then she turns the corner and she's on a soundstage. Like, yeah, very, absolutely. Very um, obviously. And I used to, the thing I used to say, because then I saw Mamma Mia 2, Here We Go Again. And I went into that under false pretenses because people were like, oh, wait, this one's actually legitimately good. Like, this one's actually a really great movie. So I went in expecting it to actually be not like nice. And it's not. Um, I think it's kind of a mess. And part of that is because Phyllida Lloyd and Katherine Johnson weren't a part of it. Yep. But that's to say, I I thought it was technically better made. Like the lighting was more consistent and all that other stuff. Just the script was a mess. And then the original Mamma Mia movie, I always thought like all that worked. But like on the technical level, it just was kind of hodgepodge. But then I thought about it on the treadmill today. I was like, that might have been the point. Yes, like, yes, it was. Like, very old because like in the way of like old school movies where like if they shot on location they had four days on location and then had to be in a studio for the rest of it like on the town was the first movie i think to shoot on location at least yep. uh in new york anyway and to really first movie musical first movie musical to shoot on location and like use the locations um to their like uh to their extreme not just like do an establishment shot and then like you're in on a soundstage yeah. like they're shooting on the streets of new york and then like west side story does that too but west side story i think is actually a good connection to the mama mia movie because like you have the prologue where they are very clearly in the streets and then riff goes to meet tony and they're on a soundstage like it like and they're supposed to be in an alleyway that is so clearly on a soundstage and now that i think about it i do think that was the intention by phyllida lloyd and judy kramer was to have it 
be that kind of old school movie where they have these beautiful shots of Greece. And then when they get to the tavern, it is so clearly a soundstage. Like that is intentional. Well, and I would take that to the next level of what we were talking about before of like, Mamma Mia, when it was created, knew it was happening in a theater, right? We know where we are. We know what we're doing. We are allowed to live in this magical space. The art of cinema is so different because you don't already have that kind of established proscenium. You don't have this understanding that we're all escaping and going to this other world. But movie musicals do it so beautifully because like we know when Dorothy goes to Oz and is like skipping through the poppy fields, like it's a painted drop. Mm-hmm. Right. Like that sets us up to it. really have to imagine and create and imagine with our brains. And so I think there's this like beautiful direct tie to the like MGM musicals where it asks us as an audience to go on the journey because not everything is going to be perfectly laid out for us. It's not going to all be shot on location and perfectly, you know, beautiful establishing shots that lead into these nine minute steady cam shots. No, like you have to buy in. We need you to buy in and we're going to give you all the tools to buy into this musical, but it's, it's going to be a fantasy for your brain. You have to buy in and it, it's unapologetic about it. It's really clear. Like you said, like it'll shift a shot and you're like, oh girl, that's a green screen. Like that whole thing is not in existence. Okay. this but Meryl and Pierce went to drama school together and so in my brain also Mamma Mia is them like living out their early 20s like flirtation and they're like mm. early 20s room so when I watched it I'm like this is the alternate universe when they fell in love in drama school and we're just watching their love story oh, that's how you know I'm a casting director like literally that's how I watch Mamma Mia <laughs> That's how you watch. I watch it and I'm like, oh, you know that Meryl Streep was so thrilled she got to kiss Pierce Brosnan because when they kiss in that movie, she is going for it in a way that she doesn't in other movies. She like, you definitely know she was like, uh, what's her husband's name? Don Gummer. She's like, Don, baby, don't come to set. Don't come to set. I'm not going to cheat on you, but I want to kiss Pierce Brosnan in a way that I've never kissed anyone before. And I can't have you there. Don't show up. I feel like it's this like wonderful like schoolgirl crush moment that like we're getting to live out as adults. I, I, all, if you got a chance to make out with your college crush and like get paid for it, you know you would go for it. You know, you know. Who was I fond of in college? I was so focused on college of proving my professors wrong that I don't know if I had a lot of uh, energy for sexuality. Fair enough. Fair enough. Valid. Valid choice. Valid choice. <laughs> I've dragged him already without ever saying his name. And I cont- I will continue not to say his name, but anyone who went to college with me knows what I'm talking about. This is the same man that said that um, Audra McDonald and Kristen Chenoweth were all about the voice and not about the acting. And he said that, this is my, again, sophomore year of college, he said this. And I went, oh, we are going to have a terrible next two years together. <laughs> like, Whereas other people would be like, have I been wrong about Audra McDonald this entire time? I was like, no. oh, I was like, oh, you're trash. And like, maybe I'll learn one or two things from you if I'm lucky. And I did one or two things, but like, I was like, I'm going to have to sift through the bullshit you say for the next two years to find a nugget. Woof. Woof. Mama Mia. Mama Mia. The winner didn't take it all that day. Vule Honey, but you spent some money, money, money on that BFA. You know what I said to him? I said, does your mother know your opinion is shit? <laughs> I said, listen. And I, I said, gimme, gimme, gimme out of this institution. I said, honey, honey, 
<laughs> I have a dream and thank you for the music, but. But that dream involves money, money, money. So here we are, super troopers left and right, fighting and this, for what's right. This is right. our last summer. All right. <laughs> <laughs> because my life is slipping through my fingers. <laughs> we did it. We did it. Did I just peek? Did you all just hear me peek? I peaked 10 minutes ago. Fair enough. Fair enough. Great. Yeah. As, listen, as you do, you know, I do love the movie. I love the movie very much. Also, like the movie, both the show and the movie have like popped up in other pop cultural things a bunch. Have you noticed? Yes. The entirety of TikTok is fully based on the musical score of ABBA and Mamma Mia. Not just, but like in scripted things too. Like there's, oh, a, sure, whole, absolutely. there's a whole episode of Will and Grace about it. Yep. An episode of Happy Endings about it. Um, I love it when Mare Bear lets herself laugh. It's just so funny. Modern I love happy endings. I love happy endings. There's a whole moment in Modern Family when they're suck at- What? Suck, suck, suck it. Suck it. Suck it. Amazing. Amazing. Um, this, is, this is our year. year. This is the year of- Year of Penny. Year. This is the year of Penny. The, uh, not the, uh, what's it? Uh, not the fiscal year. Year's been over for uh, three months now, Penny. Not the fiscal year. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. I, I barely said amazing at all this season. You mean winter? Yeah, it's more of a summer word. Uh, it's, I love that meta commentary. Anywho, I love when Mamma Mia gets into other pop cultural references also because like it's never said in a negative light. Like it's on 30 Rock, it's on Will and Grace and it's always just about how everyone loves it. Like, have you watched 30 Rock? Yeah. Yeah, so it's end of season three when Jack finds out he has three possible dads and Tina Fey goes, Mamma Mia. It's a Mamma Mia. It's, and, and she's like, don't push it, Liz. Let it happen. There's going to be a Mamma Mia. And, it's, and everyone knows about it, but Alec Baldwin. Oh, it's so good. Oh, yeah. You should totally take the day off. Everyone should see Mamma Mia before it closes. And this is like 2006 and Mamma Mia was in no danger of closing. Not like, at all. Not at all. <laughs> uh, I love it so much. I love the show. I love its references. It's wonderful. Uh, final thoughts on Mamma Mia. I think that Mamma Mia is actually brilliant. I think that more people, I, I honor why people have such a challenging relationship with this show. People who want to blame it for things. Um, but I really think that Mamma Mia came into this world in a time where people needed to laugh and people needed to experience magic and they needed to experience like love and joy. And I think the reason it resonated then is the exact same reason that it resonates now in theaters all across the world, because life is really hard and we all want to live on a magical Greek island and find our dad and leave and be happy and sing pop songs. And sometimes that's okay. Like sometimes that's okay. That's my thought. My thought of Mamma Mia is that if you want to be in it, you need to be hot and not know it. That's my, oh my God. What <laughs> uh, you said actually ties into where I want to get to now with the aftermath of Mamma Mia opening. As we mentioned, Mamma Mia opened like the month after 9-11 happened and New York was in desperate need of entertainment, of laughter. There's a book called, um, I think it's called Broadway Musicals, like the biggest hit and the biggest flop of each season. And it goes from like 1960 to 2009. I love that book. It's a pretty good book. Peter Felicia is the, is the author of it. Uh, he, and he has some thoughts that I don't, agree with yeah and he, ha he has a couple of disparaging thoughts about Mamma Mia but basically what he says is that Mamma Mia was the show that New York needed after 9-11 yeah. um which is very true and you see it in all the reviews 
One of my, my two favorite quotes in these reviews are Clive Barnes in the New York Post called Phyllida Lloyd's staging breathtakingly simple, which is... Oh, my jaw just hit the floor. Oh, okay. What a, all, all these reviews are like backhanded compliments. Yeah. Uh, ben Branley calls it a giant singing hostess cupcake. Hostess cupcake, that's my favorite one. Mm-hmm. And he's like, in times of grief, like you, it's not enough to have comfort food. Like you need that synthetic tasting comfort food. It's like when people eat craft mac, uh, macaroni and cheese, like they don't want gourmet shit. They want straight from the box. Blue box, yeah. Yeah. And I think there, and a lot of the reviews that talk about the show working, talk touch on what we talked about, although not giving it quite the same due, or they basically are like, the show is very clever about how it puts it all together. Like if you p- pick it apart, like you're going to find the flaws. And it's not even that one thing on its own is all that strong. It's that the combination of everything together creates this weird alien. And that's very true. But I think those critics weren't giving enough due to the women behind the show that they knew what they were doing with all of this. But we did. And we have given them their due. Uh, the show ran for 14 years on Broadway. Oh, sorry, almost 14 years. Uh, mm. It's still running on the West End. It was nominated for five Tony Awards, including Best Musical, Book and Director. Do you know what it lost Best Musical to? This is my all the way callback to Honk and Gavin Creel because Thoroughly Modern Millie won. Yes, it did. Do you know what the other two shows nominated were? Oh, gosh. Uh, what year was that? That was, oh, one or two. Um, no, I don't. I should, but I don't. You're in town? You're in town! And Sweet Smell of Success. Sweet Smell of Success. That's absolutely right. At the Martin Beck at that point, which is now the Al Hirschfeld. I can see, I can see it, the thing on, yep, absolutely. Mm-hmm. The black and white poster with the red signage. Yes, with John Lithgow, like, ugh. yes, absolutely, mm-hmm. 100%. And, and Kelly O'Hara's first lead role or, you know, principal role uh, directed by my man, Nick Heitner, but ugh. it was not a good show. Uh, but you know what? <laughs> it's fine. It's allowed to be fine. Uh, what I love is that Mamma Mia lost to uh, Millie and it outran both of Millie and You're in Town. It was the absolute- Definitely sweet smell of success. <laughs> definitely sweet smell of success. I would argue maybe it's done more regionally and in schools than sweet smell of success, but I don't know. I don't follow MTI all that much. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? I mean, I will say more uh, boys in college sing, uh, I cannot- At the fountain, the honey. At the fountain. At the fountain. Oh, yeah. I hear that like seven times a day. Is it? Wait. At the fountain, is it, I can't- Oh. I cannot hear the city. Is that from Sweet? Oh, I cannot hear the city. Yes, absolutely. That and at the fountain are both are both um, for sure from it. Yeah, but I guess at the fountain is sung more because it has it's time now to song. It's just got a great thirty-two bar cut in it. It does. It does. And if you ever want to feel good about yourself, and this isn't shot on Friday, this is just like a way for you to realize that everyone is human. There is um, a video of Brian Darcy James singing that song on the Rosie O'Donnell show, and he does crack on the big money note. And we're talking about Brian Darcy James, who has maybe cracked twice in his entire life. He is a vocal trumpet. Yes. And unfortunately, one of them was on national television. And all it does is just, if you are an insecure performer and you think to yourself, well, I'll never be on Broadway. They're all superstars. They crack too. Honey, all the time. Go for broke. When I saw Newsies, Jeremy Jordan cracked on the Santa Fe reprise and I went, ah, he is human. It was wonderful. I felt so good and strong in my own sense of imperfection. Oh, my love. Oh, my love. We are all human. We all make mistakes. Did you learn nothing from Mama Mia? You know Donna learned human? a lot from her mistakes. Donna does not learn from her mistakes. You know who's not human? Christine Baranski. You want to know the day that cinema closed up shop and said, we can't top this. We're not going to make a movie again. It's the reason why COVID happened is when Christine Baranski popped out in Mama Mia, here we go again, and saw Andy Garcia. And she said, be still my beating vagina. That's and co- COVID happened because COVID was like, no we can't movie, top this. movie can't top. No movie can top this. I'm coming out so new movies can get made because you're <laughs> never going to beat this. 
And then Tolly Parton said, hold my fingernails and made Christmas on the square. Yes, 100%. Uh, what a world we live in. Speaking of jukebox musicals, you were saying people are like, oh, it brought in the jukebox musical, it killed Broadway, all this stuff. Before Mamma Mia, really the only jukebox musicals we had were things like Beatlemania and Five Guys Named Mo, which were just really reviews. Beatlemania yes. was legitimately just like a concert. Five Guys Named Mo, much more like elaborate review, but a review nonetheless. Smokey Joe's Cafe, a review. Wildly popular, wildly successful review, mind yes, you. Yeah. Well, those songs slap. Uh, Correct. Mamma Mia did sort of what Crazy For You did, um, mm-hmm. which is, you know, put these songs that you know and love and add a story to them. And it even goes one further than Crazy For You because um, until Mamma Mia, things like Crazy For You existed pretty regularly because any of those kind of mishmash shows were with songs written by musical theater writers like the Gershwins. And Crazy For You itself is even like a modernized version of Girl Crazy. So it's not like a completely new book. It has a lot of hints of that. Mamma Mia, like for lack of a better term, truly a unique gimmick at that time. Yes. Then it ushers in an era of jukebox musicals. We talked about this before, but like brings us good vibrations and all All shook up. All shook up, which is actually pretty solid. Uh, Twelve Night, it's because it's Twelve Night. Yeah, and, and, and Presley. It's and Elvis slaps because he stole all his music from people of color. So sure. He stole them. That is a fact. And they slap. That is also a fact. Correct. Um, all of the above is correct. All of the above is correct. And Cheyenne Jackson was brilliant in All Shook Up. So Cheyenne Jackson that. could break my arm. And Still you fair. know who slapped in All Shook Up? Jen Gemtees. Jen Gemtees slapped hard. She did not have to go that hard and she did it. And you Leah Hawking who, as well. You, uh, uh, Thank you. I was like, I will not take this Leah Hawking eraser right now. She, <laughs> I, I'm not. I, I, Leah Hawking is brilliant. Brilliant. She pissed all over that stage. And she sure did. She turned to Jen Gambatis and said, mop it up, bitch. And then walked <laughs> off stage. And then Jan Gambatis did it very charismatically. Correct. Correct. <laughs> so, well, I didn't realize you were going to talk about this today. Um, Here we are. Here we are in All Shook Up Land. I'm here for it. Guys, Episode Kay, two with me. Kay, Kay Lumpkin is uh, my new best friend because not only does she listen to me spiral out of control, she then listened to me talk about Leah Hawking's piss. And she's still on the I'm podcast. still here. I'm still here. <laughs> Lisa, call her Yvonne DiCarlo. She's still here. Um, <laughs> but so, as I said, like those shows start to die as Mamma Mia like continues to succeed. So you yep. can't even really blame Mamma Mia for that because that was a trend that started to die. Jersey Boys, it all comes back again. But now we start doing the bio jukebox musical, but that starts to die away after Jersey Boys as well. What brings it back again is beautiful. And why I say beautiful kind of killed the jukebox musical is because I don't think we're going to get a bio jukebox musical like Jersey Boys ever again. Yeah. Because, and it's important to remember how Mommy was so big and then everything kind of died after that. When Jersey Boys was being created, no one thought you could make millions and millions off of a show with your song catalog. Everyone at that point was like, well, Mamma Mia is the anomaly. Like Mamma Mia started it, but everything has died. It's the anomaly. Like we'll do this at La Jolla. It's fine, whatever. And so the Four Seasons and all their interviews for the book writers were super candid, very, you know, everyone had their point of view, but like no one was like, oh no, I was amazing. And like, you can only do this from my perspective. And like, I have to look amazing. They all have their faults in that show, which adds so much more drama to it. It has all this tension. And then once Jersey Boys became a billion dollar industry, everyone was like, okay, 
all of these shows now kind of have to be a little more favorable to the artists. And then Beautiful, while I do enjoy it, is very much like, here's our protagonist, Carol King. She's amazing in every way, except she chose the wrong romantic partner. And then Mm -hmm. that became a big hit. And that became the new template for all bio jukebox musicals, which have become diva worship of like, here's our lead. Here is Cher. Here is Tina. Here is the one surviving member of The Temptations. And they're all perfect, except they chose like the wrong romantic partner. Or like, if you're the Temptations guy, you didn't get to know your son that well. Um, Every other way, they are perfect or on your feet. Like I'm I'm amazing. And the only uh, fault I have is that people keep telling me I can't do it. And then I show them that I can rinse and repeat Mm -hmm. for two and a half hours. And I had a lovely time at On Your Feet and I had a a fine time at Chair Show, but it gets boring. There's no tension. There's no stakes. There's no structure. And Mamma Mia, say what you will. It has a structure. It has tension. As we said, some of our favorite moments are the ones with all the drama. So say what you will about Mamma Mia more jukebox musicals could take a cue from it. More just basic entertainments should take a cue from it. You know I what agree. I mean? Yeah. I agree. I wholeheartedly yeah. agree with everything you just said. <laughs> Alrighty. Here we go. We're going to do a, a quick little round up. Ready? Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. Here we go. Okay. First question. Far too many notes for my taste. What song would you cut out of Mamma Mia and why? Oh God. Oh no. Um, uh, you're going to hate this answer. But it is for the exact reason that we said Chikatita. And yeah. and it is literally because I think the show would be fine without it. And I think that it is forced in. And it is. everything else works for me. So would, that's it. I would even argue Dancing Queen would be a much more thrilling entry if it didn't come right after Chikatita. Yes. It already like it it ramps up, but I do think that the intro to it itself feels almost a little forced because it's just come after Chikatita, which is the most forced. And um, if we get that time back, then can we get Waterloo somehow into the story so that it's not just in the Megamix? There you go. Right. Oh yes. Mama Mia also introduced us to the Megamix. It did not introduce it to us. It didn't what introduce us Joseph. To oh no, I take that back actually. Um, Oliver introduced us to the Megamix. You're right, Oliver, honey, take it back, take it back. Yes. Oliver, what I love about Oliver is it ends with like two dead bodies and like all this trauma and like the curtain and like it's got Fagin come um, out and be like, <laughs> Fagin's like, a man could change, I guess. And like walks off stage and was like, that's somber. And then it's like, consider yourself at home, food, glorious food. It's literally ending Avita with, and then Avita's body disappeared for 17 years. What's new? Buenos Aires, I'm new. Like what? Craziness. But yes, then the Joseph Megamix and then Mamma Mia. Uh, Mamma Mia, I should say, perfected the Megamix. Oh, for sure, for sure, for sure. Also, Mamma Mia might be the only Megamix where uh, the main song of it is not in the actual show. That is definitely true. And is such an interesting choice. Yeah. It's, I wonder how they could use Waterloo in the show because Lord knows they did a bad job with it in the sequel. But it was fun. <laughs> it was fun. I just but think, awful, but fun. Yeah, it was like, ha- like, Donna, I think we should sleep together. Harry, we just met. Well, you know what they say. Waterloo. Waterloo. <laughs> Waterloo, Waterloo, Waterloo. I'm like, what? I feel like it could have been a finale of the show that was in the show, not just the Megamix. Like, I feel like, like it know, could have been the finale. You know what it could have been? Tell me. So while it's so on the nose to do I do, I do, I do for the wedding bit. That is exactly where it ha- Yes. Have Sam do a really impassioned speech to Donna. Like, don't, like, we need to be together. 
And then Donna kisses him and then goes, Mama, I wanna lose. Yep, that's it. it. Surrender. You did there it. You, go. you did it. You fixed Mama Mia. We fixed, we fixed Mama Mia. You did Mama. it. <laughs> you did it. We love it so much. We did it. Um, yeah, great, great, great. Love it so much. Next up. I dreamed a dream cast. Who do you want to see in this show? Uh, in a in a theatrical version, in a movie version, any version. Any version. It's your ball. It's your ball. Ah, it's your ballpark. Oh my god. Oh my god. Um. First of all, what I really wanted. They were going to do a huge immersive version at the O2 in London that was like a dine and immersion experience, like full dinner theater of Mamma Mia oh, at the O2. It. And it was supposed to happen right before COVID. So that's the version that I want to cast. I want these people like literally serving you pasta and like experiencing this life with you. Um, oh my gosh. Who, who, who do I want? Okay. Uh, let me tell you something that I have thought of. Great. <laughs> Most of them are, are movie women. I would love to see, obviously, I would like to see Tony Collette at some point play Donna. Yeah, we've said that. I said that yeah. earlier. Okay, great. Yeah, okay, said. great. Also, throwing this out there, uh, Nia Vardellas, my big fat Greek wedding. Oh, oh, that's that, great casting. That Connie and Carla connection. Absolutely plus, great. Plus she Greek. Um, I had someone for, another one person for Donna, I forget who. Oh, you know who i like to see play Donna at one point? And maybe and maybe it's just because um, she's been in the news so much lately. I'd like to see J-Lo do it at one point. Oh, she'd be tremendous. I she'd think, be like too good though. <laughs> well, first of all, I think her voice can fit the pop music really well. Um, and she can be funny. She's just, she's done too many movies where she's like the klutzy romantic lead that isn't necessarily funny herself. But sure. J-Lo herself like can be quirky. And I would like to see her do that again. Also after Hustlers, I'm like, justice for J-Lo, you know, like give her, give her the recognition she deserves. She's brilliant. She's brilliant. You're right. She has done like very quirky humor too especially back in her like wedding planner days so mm. i feel like she'd be great in that role speaking of wedding planner um uh judy greer i'd like to see judy greer play donna at one point judy greer's donna is a very interesting choice i am here for it i feel like interestingly though if we're going to play this connection game i want to see jennifer garner's donna Ooh, nice one you know what i want to see and i want judy greer to be um uh, Christine Baritsky. Oh, I can't agree. Uh, Tanya. Tanya. And because Judy Greer is stunning and we don't give her credit for that. She's always like the quirky friend who's like, mm. but honey, put her in that outfit and give her like free reign to do it. Ooh. I mean, yes. Just look at her in 13 going on 30 where she's in the like mermaid dress or whatever it Tom is. Tom Tom, where she plays Tom Tom. Yes. Ah, that the 90 is so four years ago, unless it's vintage. Uh, there's so little about 30. Kate Winslet as Donna. Yeah. That's like who that I want as my Donna, Kate Winslet or Kate Blanchett. Either one of them. I'm here for that. Mm, I love me some Kate. Which one? Kate Blanchett. I love me some Kate Blanchett. She hasn't really allowed herself to let go. As but a how fun person. if this was it? Well, would be great. If, if you watch her in Talented Mr. Ripley, that's really the last time Kate Blanchett has been like comedic relief. Mm-hmm. Um, which And it's so weird. Like in Talented Mr. Ripley, you're like, there's comedic relief. I'm like, yeah. And weirdly yeah. enough, Kate Blanchett. Um, I would like, if she can get back to that moment of her life to do Donna, I'm t- totally on board. I'm a little too concerned she's now in that like Elizabeth the Golden Age era where she's just like. Are we here though for a Kate Winslet moment? And what if, what if we did a Leonardo DiCaprio with Sam moment? 
well, I was going to say, how about a Leonardo DiCaprio as Harry? But that might be a little too meta, don't you think? That's for you. That's for you. <laughs> That's uh, We're going to Little Dog Laughs territory there, guys. Um, great. Yeah, we love it. Okay, great. We, d- we did it. Uh, Rainbow High Spectacle. Do you think that this show needs production value to work? I don't think we will ever see a John Doyle production of Mamma Mia and have it work, if that's what you're asking me. Sure. Uh, <laughs> I don't think we're going to see it at CSC directed by John Doyle with actor musicians doing Mamma Mia, though it would be interesting to see an actor musician version of Mamma Mia. I mean, yeah, have that like Greek band at the Taverna playing and then singing with everyone. That could be kind of fun. But yeah. no, I I think it needs spectacle to work. Get, have give it a Zorba kind of vibe, you know, where they're yeah. all in a, they're all sitting in a lineup. We're going to tell the story of Don the Sheraton and Mamma I mean, Mia. The movie kind of does that in its own way, right? Yeah. Like both movies kind of do that, but I think it needs spectacle. I think it has to. Like I think that is the way it works. I think so with Mamma Mia because the original production wasn't really spectacle. What it is is that you need to understand the attitude of the show and the lightness and the and the fluidity it needs to have so like yeah. you don't like you don't need a again you don't need a cat's tire raising uh, rising sure. but like yeah i don't think it works in a black box you need to make the audience feel like they're in another world and that can be done with a simple like scrim and lighting but you, yeah you can't really do it in front of a brick wall with three chairs and do and call it a day it would be very interesting it would be the tony collette version that we want to direct that i think could work John Doyle directs the one woman Tony Collette version of Mamma Mia. Where she plays the harmonica throughout the whole thing. But Mm -hmm. I do think, I I just, I think the people are trying to do it bigger and in more like immersive and interesting ways. And I think that is totally right. That is totally the vibe for me. Um, So if you're going to strip it back and not like put it in a proscenium experience, I love that. But I think it still has to feel magical in some sort of way. And when we strip those things away, I don't know that it works. I'll also say this, now that we've had Amanda Zeifried and Dove Cameron play Sophie, just know this, guys, your Sophie does not need to have a heart-shaped face and like look like a rat stall. She can look any way you want. They're both beautiful, talented women and they've done it well, but I want to make sure everyone understands, Sophie does not have to look like a brat stall. She doesn't have to look like she was created in a lab. Nobody Uh, in this show has to look like anything in particular. That is also the beauty of Mamma Mia, is that like, nobody has to look or be or do anything in a certain way. There are definitely tropes that people have fallen into that I think are problematic that we need to change in terms of how the show has been cast. But like in the book, in the writing, there is nothing that says anyone has to look a certain way. Yeah, no, I I totally agree. And Judy Kay even says in Nothing Like a Dame when they asked her to do it, she had seen it in London with Jenny Galloway, who is a heavier woman. And Judy Kay had trauma throughout her career always being cast as like the character actress and being told she's too heavy. And she was like, I won't just play the fat friend. And they're like, no, 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 no. That's not what we're doing. We don't want you to think that way. Like we cast Jenny because she's like an amazing comedian and had nothing to do with her size. Like just bring to it what you bring to it. And she did. And she had a ball and like various Rosies have been various sizes. Uh, Various Tanya's have been uh, various heights and sizes. Donna's too and ages and hair colors. It's wonderful. I love it very much. There's a lot of freedom with those three women. Just cast ferocious actresses of any age, ethnicity or size. There it is. There it is. And that's the breakdown for Mamma Mia. That's the breakdown for Mamma Mia. That's what we came to say. Lastly, uh, scale of one to 10 for you. Uh, one being no, 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 no way. There's no way. And 10 being now and forever. How would you personally rate Mamma Mia? Oh my gosh. Honestly, I'm going to give it like a 7.5. I think that's fair. For me, 
for me in my life and my in my dreams uh when it's kind of on the low end of a production it can be sure. a, it can be a six when it is everyone is on it that show can be like a really uh sneaky nine i agree uh, with you which is why i think i went for the solid 7.5 which lives absolutely. right in between I was just adding context to everyone for your 7.5. Because after <laughs> you it. and I just like praise this thing to I have and be like, you know, 7.5. Um, there's a reason I mean, for that. Is it my favorite musical of all time? Absolutely not. It doesn't even come close. But the reason I asked to do this one is because I feel like so many people shit on this show for reasons that have been taught to them. And they haven't actually taken the time to understand why the show works and why people go back to see it. So I was like, I want to talk about the show because everyone is going to understand the merits of Noises Off. Everyone is going to understand the merits of Billy Elliot. But like, let's actually talk about Mamma Mia and what makes it special. I thought everyone would know the merits of Noises Off. And then when I had dinner with my grandma last night and told her I recorded that episode, she was like, oh, that show's only okay. And I was like, hmm. Oh, oh. And, and Adam and I talk about it on the episode, how like every time it's revived on Broadway, everyone's like, I guess. And then they see it and they're like, oh yeah, absolutely. Um, something, yeah, there's something about like British entertainment when it comes here, we enjoy it. And then we forget how much we enjoyed it until it comes back. Um, so I totally agree with you. Uh, I don't appreciate the Mamma Mia erasure. If you don't like the show, that's totally fine. But like, as I always say, if you have a negative opinion, it's totally okay to voice it. I voice mine all the time, Yeah. but be able to articulate it in a way where you're not just shitting on it. Cause it may feel good in the moment to be that kind of catty person, but you have basically just expressed yourself as someone who's not intellectual enough to express a negative opinion in a way that someone else can understand and absorb. Yeah. Negative opinions are really hard to absorb. If you can say it in a way that people can listen and understand it, that is more impressive than anything else. Nuance. 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 Yeah. Nuance and context. Lean in. It's not a Chikatita. It's an hour last summer. You know what I mean? Yeah. I know what you mean. Okay. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for doing this. It's been a blast. Uh, this is just like gone by in a breeze. I like looked at my <laughs> clock. I'm like, oh, we've been recording for two hours. Yep. Um, I, I loved it. We both have things to do. We're both hungry. So thank you for in, uh, entertaining me this way. Where can people find you if you want them to find you? I am highly Googleable. You put my name in Kate Lumpkin and all my things will pop up. But um. I spend most of my creative time online um, on Instagram and on TikTok, and you can just search for Kate Lumpkin. I'm the first one and only one that pops up. Um, and if you want to get in contact with me about anything, go to my website, kate-lumpkin.com, and all my contact information is right there. If you want to find me, I'm on Instagram only, at Matt Koplik. Uh, Facebook is for friends and family. Uh, and while I do love my listeners, I don't love it when you guys friend me. I, I appreciate it. He but doesn't know you. I don't know you. And also like my grandma's on Facebook. And so I want to make sure that anyone that's on there has that connection to me personally. So when my grandmothers see anyone comment on my things, they're not like, why did someone say they wanted to eat you up like a snack? Yummy. <laughs> Anywho. Uh, but yes, Instagram at my like usual spelling. If you like the podcast guys, uh, rate, review, subscribe. Algorithms are a thing. We are uh, a slutty bottom for them. Unfortunately, I wish we could be a power dom top, but we cannot. We have to submit. We have to submit. Check us out next week as we get a little more intellectual with the history boys. Ooh, very exciting. But with a Mamma Mia connection, baby. Well, they both played the Broadhurst. And Dominic Cooper was in both. That is true. I forgot Dominic Cooper did the movie version of Mamma Mia. Correct. Yeah. Look at that through line we found. We found that through line. What a snack he is. And fun fact, Richard Griffiths was originally offered the role of Donna and he turned it down. (laughs) Too many. No, I can't. Uh, You know, you want to know the best thing we can say about the Mamma Mia movie? 
James Corden is not in it. Uh, boop. And boop. And there we have it. Uh, I'm trying to think who we should have us, who, sh- who we should have close this out. We close out every episode with a diva. I put it in post, so don't worry about it. I'm not going to start playing it in the speaker. <laughs> um, I've had Carol Lee. I've had Meryl. I've had Christine. Beth um, should be Beth Level. I've had Beth Level. Um, <sighs> so I've, I've, this podcast is a couple of years old now. And so I've had a lot of divas and a lot of those divas have played Donna. I've even had D. Hody, another Donna. Um, I mean, I'm sure you've had Cher at this point. I haven't done Cher, actually. I'm trying to think what I could do. That's um, Well, you know, fuck it. Audio of Cher's One Woman West Side Story. That is what yes! I'm that <laughs> Audio of Cher's West Side Story. There we go. Here we go. All right. Thank you so much for listening, guys. Again, catch us next week. And uh, yeah, have a great week, everybody. Bye. Jets are coming out on top tonight. We're going to watch Barnado drop tonight. That's where the Regan Funk will go down. And when he's hauling out the bowl, we'll tear up the town. You boys won't We're going to flatten him cool. Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There's enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.